Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to another episode of the UConn Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I am here, as always, with Dan Madigan and Daniel Connolly. It has been quite a week, and we'll get into the ups and downs of the men's basketball team. But first, hockey has some good things to report, which, uh, Daniel Connolly, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's the latest with the ice bus? Yeah, so it wasn't the greatest start to the season for the hockey team. They came in with some pretty high expectations. They have the most, or they have 14 draft picks in program history, and six of them are on this team. So it's obviously a really talented team, but they kind of stumbled out of the gate, tied with Sacred Heart, lost at home to RPI, Army, and Merrimack. Not exactly cream of the crop in college hockey. And then two weekends ago, just got absolutely dusted, taken to the woodshed, throttled by BC. They lost 6 nothing to BC on the road on Friday night, and then they lost 5-1 to to BC at home the next day. So it was not a great week to be on UConn men's hockey. There are a lot of questions about the state of the program, and it didn't look good because this past weekend they had number 12 UMass Lowell, but clearly whatever they did in practice worked because UConn came out and just looked like a totally different team. They just completely outplayed UMass Lowell, the number 12 team in the country for 125 minutes in both games. They won on the road on Saturday night at UMass Lowell, and they tied them Friday night at XL, but really should have won the game. But it was just a complete 180-degree turnaround from the weekend before, and it was finally the team playing up to their potential because when the team's playing up to their potential, they can play with anyone in the conference, as they showed at the end of last season when they beat number 13 Northeastern, they beat number two UMass to close out the season. So it was really good to see the team finally kind of coming together playing well, doing the things that Kavanaugh wanted to see before the weekend. He talked about getting in front of the net and getting into the dirty areas to score the puck. Both their goals on Saturday night came from that. A couple of their goals from Friday night came from that. They also were good at possessing the puck more in their offensive zone, which is something that hadn't happened for a couple weekends where the other team was really just setting up shop in Yukon zone and just peppering Romash with shots. Yukon then even when they got it out, they weren't really holding it very long. So then it was just back into the zone for the other team. But Tomasz Vomashka is just absolutely phenomenal in that for UConn. He's played every single game for them this season, and his stats haven't been great because of UConn not possessing the puck well. But really, for the most part, except for a couple goals against BC, he hasn't let in, let in any soft goals. Uh, against UMass Lowell on Saturday, he was just phenomenal. He was turning away every single thing that came his way. He was making some really, really tough saves when UConn needed them. So he's been just a rock behind the UConn defense and is having one of the best seasons I've seen out of a UConn goaltender. So it's definitely a really good turnaround for UConn. Now they just need to make sure they build on this performance and continue playing this well because if they do, they're definitely going to be in the top four of hockey East in the, uh, once the postseason comes around. And they're going to, I think they're more than capable of threatening to make a run in the hockey East tournament if they can play up to that level. But that still remains to be seen. Yeah, it's a young team. So obviously, um, got to give them time to gel. Uh, and consistency will always be an issue. And 
as we've discussed in the past, it's not uh, it's not uncommon for UConn to have blowouts in Hockey East play. We've we've seen that here and there. We've actually seen it quite a bit against Providence. So, yeah, this weekend will will for sure be interesting. Um, you mentioned uh, Vomashka in, in net. Um, what about just guys offensively who uh, are, get things going for the Huskies? Who are, who are the leaders offensively? So the interesting thing is from the guys that I would pick at the beginning of the season, like Ruslan Asakov, Alexander Payasov, Johnny Evans, it's actually not those guys that are doing the damage for them right now. Brian Regali scored a goal this weekend. Wyatt Newpower, a defenseman who really doesn't have a ton of points on his collegiate career, scored a goal. It's kind of been a team effort for UConn these past few weeks. And I think, obviously, you want more out of those top offensive guys. But at the same time, if you're able to score goals and beat really good teams without them playing at maybe their top level, it just shows you that there's probably another gear that this UConn team can find once those guys get going. Because after what we saw from him at the end of last year, Ruslan Asakov can seriously be one of the best players in college hockey for UConn. He's unbelievable with his puck handling. He's a great shooter. He can skate with the best of them. And he's been pretty quiet this year. Johnny Evans broke his finger last weekend, so he's probably going to be out for a little bit. And then Vlad, first off, he's a, he's a rookie, but um, he still hasn't played, done a whole lot for UConn this year. So if they can kind of get him going, even a guy like Jakob Kondalik, he led the team in points last season. He just totally racked up the assists, is a really, really good engine as a center for UConn. And he's been a little quiet recently too. So those are the guys that you would expect to be doing it, but it's really been a lot of the uh, lesser tier guys and they're getting a lot of production out of their defensemen. As I said, new power scored a goal. I believe Kunetsov had a goal in the first game, or at least he shot one for a tip in. Like I said, it's been a team effort and the fact that they're getting contributions from everyone is a really good sign for them uh, at this point in the season. All right. Well, yeah, they'll, after knocking UMass Lowell down a peg, uh, looks like Providence has uh, grabbed that mantle of number 12 slash 13. Um, UConn will be at the Excel Center Friday night against Providence and then on the road uh, to take on the Friars. So keep an eye out on that weekend series. Uh, they only have, uh, I guess, three more series before they go on a, on a pretty long break. So uh, hopefully the Huskies get, get their act together and, and uh, keep up the way they were against, against UMass Lowell. Um, <clears throat> on the women's basketball front, after starting the season off with a less than convincing win over Cal, 72-61, the Huskies went over to Nashville, where they uh, also kind of had a, uh, I don't want to say it was a struggle to beat them, but it was a, you know, it was a pretty close game. Um, before uh, actually opening up conference play on Sunday at Temple. I know we spoke extensively in the last episode about, you know, kind of the not ideal start and where expectations might be and uh, kind of varying levels of confidence around what this team might look this year. 
uh, wondering how you guys feel now after the Vanderbilt game uh, and the Temple game as well. I still think it's a little early to overreact to anything just because UConn's core four of Nelson Adota, Dangerfield, Walker, and Kristen Williams are four of the best players in the country and it's hard to find another team that has four players that are as good as they are. And then from it, it's really going to be a roughly a six-player rotation with the two freshmen and Aubrey Griffin and Anna Makarat. And those two are showing signs that they're starting to come around. Aubrey Griffin had a really good game against Temple. She had eight rebounds, and five of them came on the offensive glass. And she had nine points, so close to a double-double. Anna Makarat's having trouble getting her shot to fall. But from what we've heard from Oriama and just the rest of the team, she's shown that she can be a really good shooter in practice. So it seems like once she finally gets that first shot to fall and can kind of get that weight off her shoulder and settle in. And as Gino said, those core four are going to carry the scoring load anyway. So they don't need a ton out of Macarat and Griffin. So if they can just get those other contributions, the assists, the rebounds, on top of maybe between like 15 to 20 points from the two of them every game, I think that's a pretty realistic expectation. And if those two are doing that and the other four continue playing at the level that they're at, I think they're going to be more than okay this season. Yeah, Dan, I, I think you're, you're right. Between Makarat and Griffin, I think even for conference play, like seven to 10 points between the two of them. Uh, Cause they're most of their contributions are going to come on the glass for Griffin and uh, you know, from passing from Akra, I was looking, she has 12 assists and just two, tur- two turnovers uh, between the Vanderbilt and Temple games. And, you know, her shot isn't falling, but it seems like uh, her being, you know, playing professionally overseas for a few years and then coming to UConn, it uh, seems like the game's starting to slow down for her a little quicker than it does for most freshmen. Uh, it seems like Griffin's adjusting too, but she seems to be just an exceptional athlete. But with Makarat, I think she's seeing passing lane. She's, you know, making an impact right away on offense. Once her shot gets going, I think, you know, like you said, she'll get more comfortable and I think she'll be able to contribute and be that fifth, uh, you know, scorer that the Huskies need. Um, Griffin is going to kind of be like a, light version of Gabby Williams almost just from a steals and rebounds component. So it'll be interesting to see how they develop through conference play. And this is where it's, it is really nice to play in the American athletic conference where there's a ton of games for mock rock Griffin, uh, potentially Evelyn out even to get comfortable, get some reps in and uh, you know, get used to playing at UConn. So it'll be interesting to see what they look like in, you know, a month from now. Yeah, we will see. I mean, South Florida looks like they should be a little bit comp- more competitive than they had in the past couple of years um, this year. But my question in follow-up of that would be, okay, if the lineup has four of the best players in the country, then what are they doing barely beating Vanderbilt? Like, you know, they had a lot of stretches of discombobulated play there. And I don't know, I just think uh, – it's a talented roster. It's got plenty of experience, right? Like Dangerfield's a senior. Uh, They've all played quite a bit. Um, So that of that, of that core four. So, um, you know, from what you've seen in those games, what is it that's keeping them from reaching, I guess, uh, peak performance or optimal performance? I think even though they've uh, 
all played a decent amount of basketball. I think the chemistry is still a work in progress just because the dynamics of basketball is you usually have one player who's going to dominate the ball or one or two players. And that was Nafisa Collier and Katie Samuelson, and now they're gone. So it's kind of the team trying to figure out who's going to be the one that you go to. Crystal Dangerfield's, I think, still trying to figure out how much she needs to score versus how much she needs to pass it. Kristen Williams is still a young player and is still going through some growing pains. And Olivia Nelson and Adota is still really, is still in her first year as a starter. So I think there's still a lot of fluctuation going on where the, while they've played with each other before, they all kind of have different roles than they had in the past. So they don't really know how to make those adjustments and play off each other without having someone like Collier or Samuelson in the game. So I think a lot of it's just trying to find that balance. And then something that Gino's harped on a lot this year is they're, they're not really comfortable in their half-court offense. When they can get up and down and go in transition, they're pretty good. But when they have to stop and run plays or like produce offense, that's kind of where they start to struggle. And... Crystal came over and told Gino during the Cal game that they just needed to stop running plays because people didn't know him, and Gino agreed with her. So I think it's just kind of a work in progress getting the offense going because the defense has actually been pretty solid this year to our surprise, but it helps having someone like Nelson Adota back there to block shots. So I think it's just really getting the offense going and everyone figuring out their roles a little better and finding something that works in the half court sets. Yeah. I'm, I'm not really too worried. I think there's still pockets and flashes where you can tell that this team is still one of the best in the country. Uh, They were up by as much as 26 against Vanderbilt before uh, the Commodores chipped away and, and made it a little closer and, you know, blew out temple pretty much wire to wire. So I, I think it's just one of those things where there there has always been a few games since um, that last year with Brianna Stewart, Morgan Tuck, and Mariah Jefferson, where you know the teams just come out flat for for one reason or another. Um, I think we might have gotten one of those in you know the first game of the season against Cal, to be totally honest. So uh, I I think they'll kind of round into form. I you know they're not going to beat every single team in the country by twenty points uh, or fifteen points like they have in the past, but uh, they're still kind of in control wire to wire. It's, it's not like they're down by five uh, going into the fourth and then winning by 11 or, you know, trading baskets for a good chunk of the game and then pulling away. It, they're they're in control from start to finish. It's just the deficit is a little bit smaller. And I, I think, Dan, you touched on this a little bit, but we've gone much too long in the segment without talking about how great uh, Nelson Adota was against Temple. She had 15 points. 10 rebounds, four assists, and five blocks. So um, pretty incredible. She did fall out, but she managed to play almost 35 minutes. So um, we, you know, here at the blog and, you know, many other writers that cover the team were saying that this was the year that Adota was going to take the leap. And uh, it seems that she's definitely doing that so far. So pretty impressive. And she's going to be a force in the middle on offense, on defense, and on the boards. So the Huskies are in action next on Tuesday night when they take on Virginia, which was where 
Gene Oriema was coaching before he came to UConn. Um, <clears throat> but that will be their last home game for a while. So that's November 19th against Virginia. And then the next home game will be Sunday, December 8th at Gamble against Notre Dame. Uh, ESPN will be there. And hopefully by then, Notre Dame can uh, get back to respectability. The Irish just fell out of the top 25 rankings. Such a shame. Hate to see it. Really do. Really hate to see it. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we'll talk about a wild week for the men's basketball team. All right, so it has been a quite the week for Dan Hurley's basketball squad after opening the season with a 89-67 win over Sacred Heart. We're in good spirits. Then there's a Wednesday night game against St. Joseph's, and um, it did not go well. Uh, the Hawks got off to a 14-0 start to the game, uh, which is far from ideal. They were shooting absolutely lights out in the first half. The UConn defense seemed particularly lackluster. Um, uh, I think the other big criticism I'd have from that was just both Christian Vital and Alterique Gilbert forcing the heck out of out of a bunch of shots uh, and the offense in general. Um, it looked like a performance by uh, the Huskies under their previous coach. Um, but they were able to uh, pick up the pieces uh, by Sunday when number 15 Florida came into town and come out with a win. Uh, so 69, 69, come on. Uh, 62-59 over Florida. Uh, really good job of them, I'd say, recovering, playing a lot smarter, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so what did we make of the loss to St. Joe's? Was that, are we, are we okay just writing that off to hot shooting night and the Huskies were just not really feeling it? Yeah, I think now in context of them beating Florida the immediate next game, I think it becomes much less of a big deal because I think pretty much an almost perfect comparison is that Wagner game against uh, that Wagner game to open the season in 2016, 17, because that one, it was like after the first game, it's like, all right, well maybe they just came out flat and, they're going to be able to figure it out. But then they followed that game up by then losing to Northeastern. So at least UConn recovered from this loss and they took it. And apparently Dan Hurley took it very hard, staying up talking until 3 a.m. with his wife, according to one of the articles. But yeah, I mean, I think we've seen it in every game this year. So it's a little concerning with their slow starts. Even against Florida, they didn't, get off to a hot start but their defense actually clamped down and only held Florida to six points so I think it's concerning in that they aren't starting well and that's continuing to be a trend three games into the season but at the same time I think if anything those the St. Joe's and the Florida games just showed it's really just a matter of effort with this team because when this team is locked in and focused and determined they can beat teams 
of the likes of Florida. And when they think that they can kind of just take their foot on the gas and have an easy win, a game like St. Joe's can happen. So Hurley's talked a lot about instilling that winning mindset and just getting players to work a lot harder. And I think that's a really big part of just what we saw in these last two games. Yeah, I think that the St. Joe's loss, like you said, Dan, isn't as bad looking back. Uh, I think it's still kind of a bad sign. It's just one of those things where it's another flat start, right? And a team coming into Gamble uh, in the middle of the week and, you know, getting hot in the first half and you kind of having no answer. So I think that's frustrating to see. I, I know we've talked about the slow starts on here a lot, and it's something that I I just, I just don't understand. I just really don't understand how it's possible um, going from, you know, the season opener uh, where there's pretty much no energy. They didn't really play well until the second half um, to what happened at St. Jones, St. Joe's to what happened against Florida. And it's just one of those things where St. Joe's, I could see that being almost like a trap game, midweek game right before a big matchup against Florida. But um, the other two games, Gamble was packed you know, good environment, good crowd, a lot of energy, and the players don't feed off of it. Hurley, you know, there, there's just nothing going on offense. The defense has has been good, but uh, it's just frustrating to see that. And I, I think that's going to be a real problem because Florida is, yes, they were the 15th best team in the country, allegedly. Um, but if you watch that, that game for more than 25 minutes, you could tell that they're not. Uh, they're just not the, as good as their preseason ranking led them out to be. So it's still a good win regardless. And, you know, Florida has a good chance at ending up in the tournament still. So it's it's going to bolster the resume. But it's not like this team was – that Florida team was full of wor- world beaters. So um, once UConn plays better competition, it's going to be much more important to come out strong and play a full 40 minutes. Yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly about Florida – very clearly being an overranked team here and, and uh, it being a lot of preseason hype uh, because they were able to add, add Kerry Blackshear in the off season and they have a lot of talent, but, uh, and a really good freshman class, but um, yeah, they, they've got a long way to go before being that, that caliber of team. Uh, that being said, still, still a quality win for UConn. And I think the other thing that, we want to do. We do want to give them some credit for St. Joe's. They they were not playing smart, but they were at least continuing to try and put the effort in, and and they didn't kind of get into that trap of like bad body language. And and um, while they were taking silly contested shots, they weren't just like heaving threes necessarily. Um, they got it close to within. They got it to within a basket uh, on a couple of different occasions. Which, again, when you consider that it was like a fourteen nothing start, and like uh, you know, it was a fourteen nothing start, twenty twenty four to five at one point. Um, they were they were absolutely getting rocked. So I think you know, to just to give them some credit for that, the way they, the way they fought back was um, respectable. Uh, and then of course, with, with Florida, I think what is really impressive and what gives me optimism about the rest of the season is just that hopefully Christian Vital uh, in particular saw the lift it gives his team when he's playing 
a lot smarter, um, right? Like he can't, uh, he, he, he really played just completely within himself. He did not try to force anything. Um, and it made a world of a difference for the offense and how put together it looked. Um, so I think, I think that's a really positive development for them that, you know, going into this tournament in Charleston, uh, they've got, they've got James Booknight coming back. Um, there are some things to, to feel good about just in terms of the direction of the team. Yeah. I think Vital playing within himself is, is the X factor because, you know, when he's kind of going crazy and, and, you know, taking contested threes or deep threes and, and trying to do too much on defense, it, can add a lot of energy at times, but I think more often than not, it's taking a lot away from the team. Um, and even Alterik, Alterik was not great really against Florida, but he was able to adjust and, you know, focus on getting to the rim a lot more in the second half and, you know, credit to him. He, he still believes in himself enough to step up and hit a big jumper to kind of keep UConn ahead uh, in the final minutes. So, you know, it, it's always going to come down to guard play and, this offense has run, been run through Carlton a lot and it's been working and it was encouraging to see Carlton do pretty well against a quality post player like Blackshear, but the guards are going to need to do well for this, for this team to work. Uh, that's just how UConn is. That's how, you know, this offense is going to be run. So if her, if uh, Vital and Gilbert can play within themselves and hit shots uh, night in and night out, UConn's going to be just fine. Yeah. I'm hoping that Altariq Gilbert's, just needs one shot to fall to get the rest to fall because it was really kind of painful against Florida just watching him miss shot after shot. But Mattingen, like you said, he had that jumper at the end that was really big. And then he also had that incredible floater that just hung on the rim. And I think every single person in Gamble Pavilion held their breath while that thing just sat on the rim for what felt like an eternity. But I think they really need Altariq to be more of a distributor as compared to a scorer because I think we saw against Florida that there's a lot of guys that can score the ball. I mean, we saw Tyler Polly just catch fire at one point in that second half and just start nailing threes. And then I think as a cook kind of comes along, he's going to become more of a scoring threat just because of the way he's so long but can handle the basketball and can stretch the floor. And then obviously you've got Vital, you've got Carlton. So I think if they can try and mold Alterique into being more of a pass-first point guard and then just scoring when the points are presented, that'll really be a big boost, especially with a guy like Booknight coming back. Yeah, and Dan Polly is 7-for-12 uh, in his last two games from three, which is pretty incredible and honestly probably means he needs to shoot more, more than anything else. But uh, I was surprised with a cook. Uh, I thought he looked great again. Um, I was just surprised that he didn't score. He he had so many spots where he impacted plays on offense and on defense. I just kind of assumed that in the flow of the game, he he had a few buckets here and there. But uh, he's a really talented player. And I know I think the knock on him was that he was a little raw. And you can definitely see that. But for someone that's raw, uh, that's come to UConn, he's certainly more polished than I expected. So... I also want to point out, just because I think he's been incredible off the bench, uh, Isaiah Whaley's been amazing. He had seven points and six rebounds in 16 minutes against Florida. 
he got the offense going when he came in and hit uh, like a 10, 15 foot jumper uh, on the baseline, which uh, the, you know, Tyler for Whaley as an underclassman, that was unbelievable. Um, so credit to him for kind of working on his game, evolving and uh, finding a role on this team. I, I think he can definitely step up and play meaningful minutes. Uh, he looked a little lost on defense uh, against Florida, which was a little weird. He had like three possessions where he got beat for layups uh, almost in a row. Uh, but he's known to be a pretty strong defender, so I think it was probably just a, a mental lapse more than anything. But he's going to be a valuable piece off the off the bench if he keeps playing like this. Yeah, I mean, they've got good depth. Um, they've got guys who can step up if others aren't. So, you know, you mentioned Whaley, good performance against um, – uh, Florida, he was blanked in the in the St. Joe's game. Uh, Sid Wilson, someone who can who can contribute, uh, not yet consistently, but uh, completely agree about a cuck a cuck. I mean, I, there was one play where he had kind of like a pump fake, and then he drove in, and uh, it looked like he was about to dunk it, which would have absolutely torn down Gamble in the Florida game. Uh, absolutely torn down Gamble, but. Um, he he went for a layup and the layup missed, so I think that was the closest he got to getting on the board. But um, no, he's looked real solid, and and if he becomes the kind of guy who's a, you know, like a ten points, seven rebounds, and and two or three blocks kind of guy, like that, that would be an incredible freshman season. And uh, you know, if if um, with the addition of Booknight, we are talking about you know, what is a really solid team, but um, I think it is going to come down to those older guys, Vital and Gilbert, uh, just, just how much maturity they show across the season to, uh, to get them there. I think even though it's still pretty early in the season, I think pretty easily a cook is the best legitimate NBA draft prospect that UConn's had since probably Andre Drummond, right? I mean, there hasn't really been a ton of like hype starting before their careers and going through. I mean, Shabazz got picked in the first round, but I think that had more to do with his performance in college than his like true at uh, basketball abilities, if that makes sense. Not knocking Shabazz at all, but because I. I would be absolutely shocked if he's here more than the next two seasons. He's like, I, I can even imagine a couple NBA teams falling in love with him this season and trying to convince him to come out. Oh yeah. We yeah. talked about that. I mean, if you're, if you're seven feet tall and athletic, uh, you just need a really, you don't need to have some monster statistical season to get, to get drafted. So it definitely is possible. Um, I do think he'd need to show a little bit more to catch the eye of NBA scouts. There still are a lot of dudes like him uh, across the country. Uh, not, not, a, not a ton, but enough that uh, he needs to show a little bit more production to, to kind of get on that NBA radar. Yeah, and he, he's getting there. I mean, he had eight rebounds and two blocks against uh, Florida. And so he, it's not easy for a freshman to come in and, and make an impact on the game right away, at least at UConn, uh, since they're not normally getting, you know, top 10, top 20 recruits. So uh, it's pretty encouraging to see what he's doing. And, you know, the raw talent is there. The NBA loves guys like that. Uh, 
could easily, you know, take a flyer on him, convince him to come out early and work with him in the G League or, you know, in their system for a year or two. And he could probably turn into something special. But I, I think him coming to UConn early last year shows that he knows he's a little more committed um, and kind of in this for the longer haul. Um, not necessarily, you know, a four-year player, but I, I think he could stay here through next year. Um, he, Like Amon said, he, he needs to do a little bit more offensively for him to really raise some eyebrows, I think. Speaking of recruiting, uh, while the Huskies were not having a great night on the court in the loss to St. Joe's, at halftime of that game, they got a commitment from a seven-footer, uh, in the class of 2020 in Javante Brown Ferguson. Um, he was originally going uh, part of the class of 2021, but following his commitment announced that he's uh, going to be coming out in 2020. So that means he'll join UConn next summer. He's the second 2020 commitment joining Andre Jackson. Um, chose the Huskies over Texas A&M and Kansas. So that was his final three, UConn, Kansas, Texas A&M. So uh, big win for UConn. He's a four-star recruit. Um, because he's from Canada, it's kind of uh, not, not every recruiting service has a rating on him. And then, you know, when you reclassify, it's also just kind of like, okay, where do we, where do we plop you in the rankings? But either way, we're talking about a seven-footer with uh, good athleticism who is, you know, if you look at the makeup of this team, um, that, that last piece that you feel like UConn needed uh, for, for us to feel good about where things are going. Two great recruits uh, that, that Dan Hurley has been able to get since the announcement of the move to the Big East. And, um, you know, I think we're starting to get a sense for what type of teams uh, Dan Hurley's trying to build here. And it's not, it's not an unfamiliar formula. He's getting uh, just a, a cadre of really talented uh, guards, kind of all of which are able to um, carry the rock in some, some way, shape, or form. And then um, if, if you're able to get this caliber of big men and then pair them with wings like, you know, like you have with Polly, Sid Wilson, Isaiah Whaley, uh, Andre Jackson is a, is a wing. Um, this is, these are, these are some really uh, interesting teams that we've got kind of slated for, for the future. Um, so really big pickup for the Huskies uh, on, on a night where they were really <laughs> not having a good night on the court. Yeah, I think a big thing that you kind of alluded to is that Hurley's building future teams where I think a lot of us felt towards the end of the Ali era, even when he was getting good recruiting classes, that he was just kind of collecting talent. And it, it, there didn't seem to be like a plan there for how that was all going to fit together. But I think it's really coming together for like a solid roster moving forward and Hurley getting guys that he knows that he wants, he knows how they're going to fit into his system. There's a diverse group of players, so it's not all just one player. Even if you look at this past recruiting class, you've got a guy like Gaffney, who's more of a point guard, paired with Book Knight, who's more of a shooting guard, paired with a Cook, who's a wing post-type hybrid player. 
paired with Javante Brown Ferguson and Andre Jackson, who's a big enough in a wing. So like those players alone could form their own starting five and be a perfectly like it would make sense as a lineup on the basketball court, which I think is really good. So it's exciting to see that he's still finding the talent that he knows that he could coach and that he wants in his system, but like he did at URI, but he's now able to use the UConn brand and the Big East and those type of things to get the higher level recruits that he wasn't able to get to Kingston. Yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, how Brown Ferguson pans out and in what what he'll look like uh, just reclassifying. Um, but I, I, I think it's a great get, and I think it kind of shows that Hurley's kind of following what Calhoun used to do. Uh, but more of a modern twist, right? So he's getting, like Amon said, great guards um, that, that can handle the ball, score, distribute, can do everything, and they're going to be kind of the cornerstone of the team. Uh, and then he's filling them with shot blockers, but instead of the traditional center forward like an Emeka Okafor or a Josh Boone or Jeff Adrian, they're more of these long, rangy, athletic, like hybrid wing forward center players, um, more positionless basketball, like – Andre Jackson, a cook, a cook, or, or Brown Ferguson here. So um, it's interesting to see him kind of, you know, find a, a system or a way that he wants to go about things and, and kind of commit to it as best he can and, and fill that in. And Hurley um, hasn't been missing much on the recruiting trail, which is great to see, but I think he's also doing a good job of recruiting the same style of player. Uh, like, like kind of what Dan said, uh, Ali was always accumulating talent because he was going after the biggest fish and wasn't landing them. Um, and, you know, if he stayed, maybe he would have gotten one eventually, but it was unsustainable just because eventually there was pockets of players where, where things just didn't make sense. So uh, it's, it's good to see Hurley getting guys that, that fit in his system and his scheme. And uh, I'm excited to see how they pan out. Yeah, I mean, you know, to bring up Jeff Adrian, I think this this year's team could really use a, a Jeff Adrian, a bruising guy who can uh, bang down low. Uh, next year they will get Richie Springs back too. Um, so that'll be uh, another addition to the front court. And then they'll also have um, RJ Cole, the Howard transfer, who is, um, you know, very much uh, in that lead guard who can score the crap out of the ball kind of kind of guy. Um, so, uh, yeah. And Aman, if, if Altariq comes back next year too, which, you know, isn't a definite, uh, that's a really fun team. Um, not, no knock on Vital. He, he's a high level player too, but having this team with another year under their belt, plus Cole and, and Gilbert staying over, uh, that's, that's a scary team. That would be a fun first year in the big East. Yeah, I mean, that's great. It's, it's definitely shaping up to be a strong roster for that first year in the Big East. I think the Gilbert situation is really interesting because um, I'm getting a sense, this is not any sort of sourced information or anything like that, but I'm getting a sense that Gilbert, Gilbert is gone after this year. I think, you know, he probably just wants to move on with his life and uh, whatever level of professional basketball that, that ends up being. Um, you know, it's probably not going to change with one more year at UConn, where, wherever that is. So after this, so I think there's a decent chance he ends up 
um, deciding to move on though of course yeah it would be it would be incredible because then you've got such a stacked team next year um, right now the scholarships are full uh, so they've got all 13 scholarships for next season spoken for um, there uh, is always the possibility of, of Gilbert leaving and then you know anyone could transfer out or a cuck or cuck just gets gets crazy over the 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 home stretch of the season and and ends up becoming a, an NBA prospect. But um, I think I think there's a decent chance that um, Hurley and the staff are still looking for someone in the class of 20, uh, 2020. That's um, just a just a hunch that I'm feeling. Yeah, it makes sense. And and we'll probably get a better feel on this um, as the high school season comes to an end or as the high school school year comes to an end in like, you know, May or June. And, uh, you know, even I guess in March, but once Altreek makes a decision, um, it'll, it'll obviously open up at least one spot and Hurley will probably still be in on some guys throughout the course of this, you know, season that, that we have. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. I kind of agree with you, Amon. It reminds me of the decision that Morgan Tuck had uh, after winning four four straight titles uh, with the women's team. She had the opportunity to come back due to some injuries that she had, but, you know, was so injury prone. I guess that's not the best term, but, um, you know, she battled the issues her whole career. and, And I think she was worried that another one would, kind of cost her more money in the long run so she decided to go pro and and got drafted and and has had a successful career and did get injured actually that first year out of college but was able to you know get paid get a contract and and move on so it'll be interesting to see what Alterique does he's definitely good enough to play somewhere but uh, we still have almost a full season to to enjoy him before we have to talk about any of that yeah, I'm also also with you on that sense that this might be Alterique season for a couple reasons. Well, one is that Hurley's mentioned a couple times his senior guards talking about Vital and Gilbert, and Gilbert is definitely a redshirt junior. And really, I think if Gilbert and the team wanted it, they could probably get an extra season as a medical redshirt in there for the twenty for any of the two seasons that he had to sit out the entire, pretty much the entire year for just because he played so little, even though I don't think that's going to happen. Another thing that kind of gives that hint is that even when Javante Brown Ferguson committed, I remember reading that UConn was still going to be in on Cliff Omayuri, a four-star center prospect in the class of 2020. And I feel like unless Hurley had a sense that I, I feel like that Hurley wouldn't continue recruiting a player unless he had a sense that someone on the team wasn't coming back. And I think the fact that he's already kind of referring to Gilbert as a senior guard and that no one in Hurley's program really typically transfers out, it all kind of points to it possibly being Altariq that might be the one that ends up heading out. For sure. The other thing I, I, I wanted to note just about the, the roster makeup is that um, it's so balanced, not just, uh, as Conley mentioned, in different kinds of players, but by class, finally, uh, for, for the first time in maybe ages, it's, it's a balanced uh, team by age. 
So if you just, if, if everyone stays and et cetera, et cetera, next year's roster is three freshmen, three sophomores, three juniors, and four seniors. Um, and then you could imagine if Gilbert, if Gilbert does leave, um, they might go the transfer route uh, just to bring a little bit more experience onto the roster. So um, I think that's, that's also just good in terms of long-term development. I'm sure Hurley looked at kind of the state of the roster and, and how every, it was kind of all clumped both in the, in the type of player that, that was on the roster and in their age. Uh, so good job in a relatively short span uh, by Hurley of, um, getting that through. I think just to note about Brown Ferguson, um, he definitely is a is a raw, taller player. I think kind of almost similar in mold as uh, Richie Springs, who's redshirting this year uh, for UConn. So I think these Hurley's had this interesting trend of big men moving down a class and then uh, deciding to come to UConn. So. Uh, interesting strategy, but it has worked out just in the sense that UConn is getting these types of bigs, these like true, tr- tried and true big, well, these kind of seemingly prototypical big men uh, coming to UConn for the for the first time in a few years. Yeah, and just to hit on your point, Amon, about having a more balanced roster, I think that was one of the biggest issues we saw at the end of the Kevin Ali era was that even when they had players, there was no one on the roster that could really replace them. So like when they lost, obviously Shabazz and DeAndre Daniels, there was no one that could replace them. And that's kind of what led to that down season the year after. And then you lose Boatwright and there's no one there to replace him. And then at that point they had to then start going the grad transfer route where they're taking these guys and plugging these holes because they don't have the next guy ready to step in. And then, when you even get a guy that has talent that might be ready to go, they're coming in as freshmen when they need to be relied upon. And like Jalen Adams was his rookie year, like Vital and Gilbert was expected to be their freshman years. Whereas, and even guys like Pauly and Whaley played a ton their freshman year when they probably should have just been chilling on the bench and getting right. Started. And and then that also led to Ali really having to go aggressive after some grad transfers and bring in some guys that weren't that great. Like we all remember Antoine Anderson and big Dave. Yeah. Well, the grad transfer route did David Onuora. Uh, That's right. The, um, the grad transfer route kind of worked out for a little bit, right? Lasan Chroma. Uh, The year he brought in Sterling Gibbs and Sean Miller, Sean Miller, they, they, won the AAC tournament and made the NCAA tournament and, and actually won a game in the NCAA tournament. So um, it, it was working out. But, yeah, when you're so reliant on the grad transfer and you're not building from within on the roster, then you're just hoping to hit on grad transfers every year uh, to fill those holes on your roster. And I think, obviously, you know, not to – we don't need to get into the, the postmortem on the Ollie. We've, we've done the hell out of that. But, of course, you know, losing – losing, everyone from that 2016 recruiting class uh, also uh, all but uh, um, all but Gilbert and now I mean Diara's on the bench so but losing those three guys from the 2016 recruiting class uh, really kind of took took the core out of that team and and they they never recovered from that so yeah just a quick Vance Jackson update because uh, your 
you got me thinking there, Amon. He's doing 6.8 points and uh, shooting 25% from three this year. So not as great as uh, his last season, but seems to be putting together a nice little career in New Mexico. He was, he was putting up kind of those types of numbers at UConn as a freshman, though. Yeah, he had a pretty good uh, sophomore year, though. He had 13 points, seven boards, and, and 33% from three. He was way higher than that, though. I think he uh, must have been gunning him up towards the end of the year, and it tanked his, his percentage because <laughs> he was up around 40% for a good chunk of the year, if I remember correctly. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I know that Enoch did pretty well for Louisville and Durham was looking pretty good for, for Notre Dame as well. So um, just just tough stuff, tough stuff. Um, so the Huskies are in action next, as we mentioned, in the Charleston Classic. So that game, the first game will be this Thursday, November 21st at 9 p.m. They'll be taking on Buffalo. Uh, and, you know, Buffalo's actually a pretty decent team here. They're rated 100 in Ken Palm. They're coming off, um, they're coming off a 32-4 and four season where they w- were a six seed in the NCAA tournament. Um, and, yeah, I mentioned they're, they're, they're ranked 100 in Ken Palm right now, coming off of an 88-76 win over Harvard. So... Uh, they're they're looking like they're in in pretty good spirits heading into this matchup with a UConn team where um, there's there still is a lot to figure out. Um, rest of that uh, Charleston Classic field, if if UConn wins, they'll probably end up playing Xavier, which which will be interesting, and then they might even get a chance to see Florida again uh, down in Charleston. So. Um, keep an eye out for that but don't don't sleep on this Thursday's game obviously we know we know more than to overlook an opponent um and it's going to really be important for UConn's strength of schedule I think that they win this game so they don't have to play um I think it would be College of Charleston right is who they would play if uh I thought it was like Towson might uh, be you are right no it's Towson yeah Xavier's playing Towson um, so yeah, we're we're assuming Xavier beats Towson, um, but if not, UConn's playing Towson, and then in the in, the, in that losers bracket, St. Joe's is also, by the way, in the uh, in the other side of that uh, of the bracket here. So potential rematch with them looming as well. So uh, I wouldn't mind a matchup with St. Joe's just for redemption redemption's sake. To be totally honest, they're playing right. Florida. That's going to be really interesting. That's a really interesting uh Yeah, well, I guess we're, we're rooting for Florida, I guess. Yes. That, so <laughs> uh or do we root for St. Joe's so that the St. Joe's loss doesn't look as bad? Quality loss. I th- I think I think <laughs> every game besides this because obviously we want the Florida win to look as as good as possible, but I I do agree in general. We are we are rooting hard for St. Joe's the rest of this season. <laughs> deep yeah. pick from the A10. Start. You heard it here first. Go Hawks. They, they must be one of the best teams in the country, very clearly. Um, yeah, but I think I'm on for, for Buffalo. Uh, they lost their head coach that took them to the, the tournament, and they were, they were a pretty strong program under Nate Oates, and he's at Alabama now. So uh, it'll be interesting to see 
what this team looks like with, with a new head coach and, and how they play. It seems like they're still kind of getting through and getting used to, to all everything that comes with a new coach. So it'll be interesting. Hopefully, you know, Hurley and the Huskies can take care of business, but uh, there's definitely still some talent left over from a pretty good Buffalo squad last year. And it's just going to be exciting to finally see book night since barring anything weird, that's going to be his first game back. And uh, that's another element to the team that we don't even know yet. Like he's a complete unknown now that he's got all those legal issues behind him. So I think, I think honestly, that's what I'm most looking forward to in Charleston. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've been hearing some good things from, uh, from various reports on the kind of player Brook Knight can be. Um, seems like he'll be uh, someone slated for, for immediate playing time, uh, maybe even potentially being in the starting lineup, but eventually, but I think even from the get go, he'll probably get pretty good playing time. And if he's someone who can be a dependable scorer, that's, um, you know, obviously a really big uh, and important job that uh, nobody on this team is, is really fully able to do. Um, and so that would be, uh, that would be good. The other thing, you know, the, so the Huskies will be in, uh, the Huskies will be in Charleston this weekend. Uh, what, uh, they will be back in Connecticut on December 1st for their first regular season game at the XL center, uh, Wednesday the 4th at Stores, Connecticut. And I just want to say to the UConn fans, um, this team needs your support. Uh, And according to a few local sports writers, if you don't go to the games, they might lose and the program will sink into disrepair. So uh, do your part and go to the games. Otherwise, uh, UConn will probably lose to Maine and Iona and it'll all be your fault. Even though the two out of three home games this season were sellouts. Program's dying. But listen, I don't know about you, but if, if the fans can't show up for an Iona, a game against Iona College uh, on December 4th in Stores, Connecticut, then I don't know if this fan base deserves a winner. And it's a, it's a big, big problem. And they deserve everything bad that happens to them, in my opinion. On that lovely note, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you all for listening.